ourselves through thoughts, emotions, and how we construct and deconstruct information, all projected onto ink. The Rorschach inkblot test has been used for almost 100 years to shed light on the complexities of the mind. On this episode of Through the Trees, I sit down with Dr. Harlan Austin, psychologist at Cedar and director of clinical quality, to delve into the themes of this fascinating test and its role in psychological assessment. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm here at Cedar as part of our Through the Trees podcast. I am very excited today, sitting down with Dr. Harlan Austin. Dr. Austin is a psychologist here at Cedar, and he has a significant leadership role involving uh, the director of clinical quality and the way Cedar runs. Today, we are going to talk about, I would say, a little bit of a legendary topic in the field of psychiatry and psychology, and that is the Rorschach inkblot test. Um, the Rorschach test has been portrayed in movies, in pop culture. Uh, there are some cases in which we actually still use this in treatment for very sophisticated testing. And we're going to spend some time on our radio show today kind of dissecting this test. And I'm really excited. Dr. Austin, thank you for sitting down. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So, um... Where should we start with this topic? Can you tell us a little bit of the history behind the Rorschach test? Yeah, sure I can. I loved your description of it as uh, sort of legendary uh, because that really has become the reality for that test. It is so, uh, I think, prevalent in popular culture. People have an idea about it. And I think part of that is because it's actually been around for so long. So it was actually created in 1921 which if you compare that to many of the other commonly used psychological tests is way older. You know, it was probably 50 years before we really got into regular use of many of the tests that people are familiar with nowadays. And so this was really an early um, adaption of the use of some sort of formal assessment and certainly using a projective means to do that was uh, fairly revolutionary at the time. So th this is kind of the granddaddy of psychological testing mm -hmm. in particular projective psychological testing so what does that mean what is projective testing yeah so projective testing what we're talking about here is what is happening during the testing process for the person who's being tested so there's a couple of different types of testing and to understand projective testing i think it's helpful to first look at uh, the more commonly used style which is objective testing so objective testing is I ask you a specific question and you give me a very straightforward answer. So true or false, I like mechanics magazines. True. Right. All so right. <laughs> that's actually a okay, question on good. the MMPI. Okay, okay good. All right. So that's, a, that's an objective. With, with an objective, it's very 
as it says, it's objective in that you can read the question and you have an idea of what's being asked of you. And so you are going to either answer with a true or a false or a, let's say, a very true or a very false on another type of objective test. But the question is written out. You can tell what's being asked of you. And so the person who's being asked has a, an opportunity to think about what their answer is and then provide the answer based on really their their kind of cognitive associations with what they see written in front of them. So like there's like uh, expressive answers. It's not just a binary answer. With objective tests, it, it may be binary. Then it might be. Okay. Right. Those are going right. to be typically binary where okay. you have a forced choice. Right? Okay. Multiple it, choice, it, it might true, be, false, right. like multiple okay. choice, true, false. Those are the objective tests. And so that's what most people think of. A projective test works very differently. The way that it works is it provides the person who's being tested with an ambiguous stimuli. And so if we're talking about the Rorschach, that ambiguous stimuli is an actual ink blot. And what happens when somebody is presented with such an ambiguous stimuli is that there's not a straightforward answer in their head that they know to give, right? There's not a true-false. There's not an A, B, or C, or D. Hmm. They are asked a question. And the question is very open. What might this be? And, and with the Rorschach, they then project onto that blot what lies within their kind of unconscious without being able to plan or defend based on what they think they should answer. So it's very hard for someone to come up with an answer they think is the correct answer or the right answer. Oh, interesting. Okay. So very open-ended to try to tap into something very internal for this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the human mind, it likes to organize information, right? It likes to understand and organize information. And when you have an ulterior motive, for example, and you're trying to project yourself as being healthy or unhealthy, and a test is asking you a question that's true or false, it's pretty obvious how you might try to influence that test, right? Sure. I yeah. hear voices. Well, if you want someone to not think you hear voices, you say false, right? However, on a projective test, when your brain is given an ambiguous stimuli, it's trying to organize and understand what's in front of it. However, there's not a clear way to do it. And so what it's left to do is essentially function the way that it normally functions in organizing that information. So, for example, if we had somebody who actually was having a psychotic experience, they're going to organize information in a way that's congruent with somebody who's psychotic. And that's what the test is able to do because it organizes their answers and compares those answers essentially to how other people have answered the same question when looking at the same ink blot. And if they answer and look at that blot and interpret it in a very similar way as someone else who happened to be psychotic, chances are they're organizing information in a similar way, and that's likely something that's going on for them. So um, does that mean it is harder to hide from a test like this? Like, exactly. Like exactly. You, you can't uh, shape it based on what you think your listener wants from you. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's why we might use a projective test for somebody quite often. So if we compare it to the objective tests where somebody is very clear about what's being asked of them and they're wanting to influence that test one way or the other, there are certain measures that are built into those types of tests that can tell us, hey, this person is trying to fake bad or trying to fake good. But there are some people 
especially those who are particularly psychologically minded, who might be able to take a test like that and look like they were normal without faking good or faking bad, when the reality is they are actually trying to hide something. And we see that in particular here with some of our specialized patients that we treat in our physician's track. Okay, interesting. Was Rorschach the creator? Was that a, was there a man named Mr. Rorschach? Yeah, yeah, so Herman Rorschach was a Swiss psychologist. And you know, it was really interesting how he came up with this test. Uh, it, it was based on a children's game. And the way that the children's game worked, uh, it essentially presented these ink blots to children, and, and their task was to create some sort of a nursery rhyme that rhymed along with what they saw in the ink blots. Okay, so it was a just a game that kids would use. What he did was he worked with uh, patients in a mental hospital, and he was just having the patients play the game, and he started to notice that the different patients responded very differently to the ink blots based on their diagnosis. And he saw some real interesting patterns there, and particularly with the psychotic patients and the way they interacted and the way they interpreted what they saw in the same ink blots that everyone else was seeing was very different. And so he set out to measure this and, and pay attention. And really that was the birth of the Rorschach. And there was, there's more than 10 cards in that original children's game but what he did was he found the 10 cards that seemed to elicit the most, um, I think, differential responses from the patients that he was working with. Did he, did he create the cards? He was it his, his artwork? Or his, it was his, his artwork. Okay. And then have those, have those cards kind of stood the test of time? Like, do we use similar cards today? We do. Yeah, we do. So the, the cards stay the same. And so we've got 10 cards that we use. They go in order when you're administrating the test, one through 10. And um, you know, part of the reason why we keep the same cards is because all of the data used for scoring and all of the norms that have been set up for interpretation have all been established based on these cards. And so everything would have to be completely changed up if they were to switch cards. Oh, interesting. So they, yeah, you need to keep it consistent to be able to make to draw from the data of the past. Exactly. I guess. Similar to other testing. I know we do that with all different kinds of psychological testing. Yeah, it's very similar. I mean, you have norms, and when you have stronger uh, database that you're working from, right? you can speak with higher confidence about what you're seeing if what you're seeing fits in with this big number of people. Now, was a test like this revolutionary at the time? It, it was. It really was. And there weren't a lot of other projectives that were created for several decades thereafter. But then since then, there have been other projective type tests that were created where, again, it's an ambiguous stimuli and the, and the patient is expected to respond to that stimuli in a way that they're trying to organize the information that's there and they don't know what they're supposed to do. So they just organize with what tools they have available. And then that gives us a snapshot of how the tools that they're working with, i.e., their mind is organizing information. So a couple other examples of what a projective might look like. Uh, we have one that's called the house tree person. Okay. Very simple test. You ask someone to draw a house, to draw a tree, and to draw a person. 
And based on how people draw those different items, there are a multitude of interpretations of what's going on for the individual. Uh, another type of projective is the thematic apperception test. And in this test, we have, like the Rorschach, a number of different cards that are shown. But in this one, the cards have a, a scene, a picture. They're a picture of various situations. One, so a woman and a family standing by a, a field. Another one is a man standing over a woman laying in bed and things like that. So they're ambiguous situations. People are asked to tell a story about what they see in the picture. And then based on the content of the story, we are getting a projection of how they organize information. And in a similar manner, their answers are compared to kind of how the typical answers for someone who's depressed might look or the typical answer for someone who's psychotic might look. Oh, interesting. So you would take a whole bunch of people who are depressed, have them all do the test, see if, and then that's kind of your benchmark for the depressed version of taking this test. Yeah. And that's the exact thing that was done with Rorschach when they developed the scoring system. Okay. Is uh, In the 70s, uh, there were uh, several different methods of interpretation of the Rorschach. And, and at that point, there was an effort to consolidate one solid interpretation that everyone would use. And that's what we're currently using today. It's the Exner scoring system. Okay. And so that's a little bit more of an advanced or a solidified version. So this, this test was developed in the early 20s, yep. coasted for about 50 years in use, and then it kind of got repackaged a little bit in the 70s. Yeah, with a lot more of the psychometric strength by having these established norms that were collected and the populations of different inpatient diagnoses and, and able to create scoring system that you could use numbers to compare. And based on those numbers, we have now a set of numbers that are normal. And then if you go outside of that range, it likely means this. If you go outside of that range, it likely means that. Okay. Uh, so, Dr. Austin, so very interesting. Um, now, you administer this test, and with some of the patients that we have, and you, you, you touched on a little bit on the process. You said, so we've got 10 cards mm -hmm. that's done, and then you ask them a very open-ended question. Yeah. Like, what, what do you see? And then the person starts talking, and then are you writing down their sentences? Or how do, what yeah, happens? Yeah, that's the fun part of administration. <laughs> we have to write down everything that's said word for word. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And okay. so... Um, you are just jotting down, and you know, of course you have to use shorthand to keep up, but you jot down all of the responses somebody has, and uh, most people see more than one thing for each card. And in fact, if somebody doesn't see enough responses after you go through all 10 cards, you have to go back over and do it again until they get enough responses. So there's a minimum oh. number that they need to see for us to be able to score. Okay. And once you have that number, you've let's say you, everyone gives two responses per card. Now you've got 20 responses. After that, we go back in the beginning and then we actually ask the patients to elaborate on what they saw. And again, we're writing down everything they say so that we understand exactly what they saw and where they saw it in the inkblot. I, you know, it, let's just use a, an example of it's a bat, right? So where, what makes this look like a bat? And you have them point to the card and describe what to them makes it look like a bat. And, and all of that information that you gather when we go back through that second administration is also a part of the scoring system because we need to use all of the words that, that the patient uses in their interpretation 
we code every word and it goes into a very foreign language looking equation. And the equation then will come up with these numbers. And the numbers are the numbers that are coordinated with the norms. And then you can use that to help understand how that person is, let's say, dealing with emotions, how that person thinks about themselves, how that person interpersonally interacts, how that person gathers information, and then also what happens when a person gathers information once they have the information in their mind. So there's all of these different factors that we're going to be able to look at and see the differences in the way this person interprets their environment. So somebody says, okay, I think this looks like a bat, your, your example. And then on the elaboration of why, you're able to draw out internal emotions somewhat through those? No, it's the scoring that will tell us about the emotions, right? So what they will tell us in the elaboration is, okay, so that right there is a wing, that's a wing, there's the feet, and there's the head. Okay. Right? So we, we would use all of that information to then tell us, okay, so how are they taking information in here? Um, because different people will describe what they see in different ways. So one example is, are they just looking at the outside shape of the blot? Right? Is that what they're using to tell themselves what they see? Oh, okay. That's one way of interpreting. Another might be that they're using the dark and light shading that they see in a blot. That's another set of information for us. It also could be that there's color on the blot and that they ignore that there's color in the blot and they don't use that. Or there's color in the blot and that's all they talk about. Right? So all of those different ways that somebody might interpret the information that's put forth to them on the card comes together to help us understand how they're organizing information in the world. Yeah. So traditionally, we look at color with, within the Rorschach context to somewhat represent emotion. And so we may see somebody who's rather emotionally restricted to not actually acknowledge color in their interpretations or not mention it when they're talking about it early on in the test. However, with people who typically repress emotions, eventually it kind of explodes out. And so what we'll see often with those folks is as you get towards the end of this 10 card assessment, and the last card is filled with all these wonderful colors, that they will just essentially kind of explode out themselves. And now they'll respond in all of these uh, very varying ways with seeing a bunch of different things on that card whereas early on they were keeping it buttoned up and they didn't mention anything about color. Wow, interesting. So it's even the you even pay as close attention to the timing of the the experience of them doing the test and what they might say towards the beginning of testing with them, towards the end of the uh, um how long does this take? Like um, it, it takes anywhere from somebody who gives a few answers might do this in an hour. Somebody might do this in 90 minutes. So 60 to 90 minutes is about average. Okay. Okay, interesting. Are there so you mentioned things about color? Do some of the cards have color and some don't? Yeah, or, some of them have color, some of them don't. Some of them have a mixture of black and white and color. And again, all of these different aspects of the cards can influence how somebody internally will project on what they see. Um, different styles of interpreting information from the world present differently with how somebody sees the card. So if you have a person who this is a a Rorschach word, but we call them an over-incorporator, right? So an over-incorporator is somebody who tries to gather too much information and gather all the information to make a decision. Hmm. And what okay. often happens with somebody who does that in their regular life is you might have someone who is rather anxious, right? Somebody who's maybe overwhelmed. 
somebody who has a hard time making action because they're too busy or too focused on gathering all the data and all the information around them. Right? And so for that person, if they saw a card, they might try to make sense of every single little detail they see on there in the story or what they're telling us they see on the card. In that it, it needs to be packaged up into one cohesive picture. Yep. And if it's not, it they have a hard time with that. And they can't move on and they can't go forward, which is usually a parallel to something that's happening in their life with the way they are trying to gather information in their life, gather all their thoughts up or gather all their feelings up, something along those lines. I know we're... In the world of addiction treatment here at Cedar, and we have a lot of people that want to make they want to make sense of their addiction. They want to get to the root of it. I wonder, do you think that those people would have, be the overincorporator for their testing? Uh, they could be. They very well could be. Um, you know, we have folks who are very interested in essentially external, right? Give me all the information outside of me rather than the information inside of me. And you might see that with an incorporator, right? People who are in treatment, they're trying to figure out what's going on, but the focus usually isn't internal. It's like, what is all the stuff that's happened and who outside of me or what's the fault? And, and that might be an example of how you'd see that. Interesting. Okay. You alluded to that we, I know uh, you're very involved uh, here in your clinical work at Cedar in our professionals program. We have a, a pretty advanced program for physicians, pilots. Will we use this test for a lot of these professionals? Yeah, we will. In fact, this is, I think, the population where we find we get a lot of really helpful information. Uh, I think I mentioned if somebody's essentially psychologically minded to an extent. They can understand how testing works. You know, usually you'll get that through some higher education of some sort. And then they'll try to come through some of the more objective tests, essentially scot-free. So it looks like everything's fine. And we have found with those patients, that's really coming from a defensive place. You know, if it's a physician in treatment, they're worried about losing their license or something like that. So they want everything to look like it's okay. And in those situations, what we want to do is bypass those defenses with a test that isn't so clear to them. And that's where the projective comes into play. We use the Rorschach, we get around those defenses, and we get a better snapshot of what's really happening under the surface for those folks. Oh, yeah. And like they're they, not sure how to fake it. Like they would, something they were a little bit more hesitant or more guarded, and they can't guard this. Yep, exactly. I mean, a classic example I can pull is somebody who has taken one of our measures like the MMPI or the PAI and, and they're in treatment. We know they're in treatment for an addiction issue, but they come out as having no problems. So we use uh, the Rorschach with a physician and we find out actually what's going on is they have some depressive symptoms and they have a coping deficit. So they don't have a lot of coping skills. So because they're feeling sad, but they can't admit that and they're not willing to admit that because possibly professional identity and expectations of their workplace, and they don't really have an established set of coping skills, they turn to their use of alcohol to maintain. And that's what ultimately got them into treatment. Now, they weren't able to admit to that on a test that asked them straight up. But when we look under the surface, we see those as potential causes of what got them here. Oh, and so, so like more insidious problems. They'll, they'll present on the surface that they're very well adjusted and very put together. Uh, but as we dig a little bit deeper, and this, it's, I mean, this sounds like just a wonderful tool, a wonderful shovel for, yeah. for digging. Digging underneath the surface, it really is. And uh, the information that it provides is, is really different in that it's not only, you know, what's happening with some of the emotions, um, 
but what happens with information, right? You know, when, when we see how somebody's looking at the inkblot, sometimes they have a response, but then when you go back and they're elaborating on their response, then you get a bigger picture of what's really happening in their mind about that response. So they might be able to say something like, oh, it's, it's a bat, right? So that's their initial interpretation. But then when you ask them, tell me more about that, what makes it look like a bat? It's like you open up the floodgates. Oh, it's a bat. And then they have a story attached to it. And there's all this extra information they're giving that's not really needed. Well, for us, as we're doing the assessment, that's great data because that tells us that you might take in information like everyone else does. But once it's in your head, you're doing all sorts of extra things with it. And that can get in the way of your ability to concentrate, to be present, things like that. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Very interesting. I, I know you, you threw out the example, you said the, if I have this right, the over-incorporator. Over over mm -hmm. Do you have any other good... Common examples, common versions. Yeah. Well, there's also the opposite of that. You know, the under incorporator. Okay. So this is the person who doesn't look at all the information and just makes a quick judgment on something that they see, but they don't use much info in their interpretation. And so you might see that a, a blot that has a lot going on, somebody gives a really simple answer for. And when you ask them to elaborate, there's not much there. And so they just looked at one small piece of data, that's what I see, that's it. And they ignore all the other information that's there. And you can see how that might be a challenge in somebody's regular life. Yeah. If they are just looking at things for a narrow lens. They take in some information and they make their mind up and they don't think or contemplate any more on it. And that could clearly create some problems in somebody's life if they're too narrow in their focus on what's happening. So are there theories on why somebody might, the mind might take that under under approach? Yeah, I mean, it could be a lot of different reasons. One of them could be that they don't have the actual energy to do it, right? So if somebody's okay. depressed. They get tired or they yeah. get overwhelmed or something. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's depressed doesn't have a lot of cognitive resource. And so they're just like, okay, information, I see it, quick snapshot, and that's it, right? And the way that that can really contribute to depression is that then they can just look at the negative, not look at a whole picture, right? And it can have that effect of putting someone deeper and deeper into that depression hole that they might feel like they're in. They can't see or think of or imagine other options because they don't really see or imagine all the details, right? They're just having this very narrow focus. Are these people who run into the same struggles, they can't get out of struggles, they can't work their way out of things because they, they're in loops or they're stuck? Yeah, I mean that, that could be the way it played out for somebody. Um, you know, and one of the things that's really important when we're using the Rorschach, though, is to use this in concert with other data. Okay. Right? And so we never want to just use the Rorschach by itself. Uh, we want to use it and we want to compare it to how somebody maybe did test on an objective test like an MMPI or a PAI. And then we also want to compare it to what does their clinical history look like, right? What is, what is the story behind this person? And then we look at that information. We look at the information from another test, and then we look at the information from the projective. And if we see common themes, then we can really strongly speak to what we're seeing and what we're 
uh, interpreting from the results. And we kind of, we have the luxury for that here. I mean, we're, we're working with people 24-7. We see them in a lot of groups. We th- see them in a lot of appointments. So we already have working ideas on what they might be struggling with. And this, so this adds a lot of value to that. Yeah, it, it is a real unique context. And I really appreciate that about uh, what we have going on here at Cedar because we do have all of this great clinical data from their psychiatrist, from their counselor, maybe from the chaplain, right? All of the different folks who are interacting with our patient are sharing that information. And we can use that data to help paint our picture. And then we use the psych testing, in particular uh, a projective test like the Rorschach, to just really confirm all of the picture that we can see, or maybe sometimes to shed some light on something that we're not understanding. We're seeing behaviors, we can't make sense of it. You use this projective and you find out, oh, here's what's going on under the surface. Maybe that would contribute to what we are seeing behaviorally. And then do we give the feedback to the person? Is there like a feedback session where we say, this is what your test scored for? Yeah, we do. And I think another thing that's really beneficial about our treatment context is that we can do that in a way that involves the treatment team. So it's really great to have the counselor, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, and maybe other providers in the room as we share the results to then link it back to the behaviors people have seen. And then, of course, after that, link it towards what we can do as far as interventions. Because data and diagnosis are helpful, but without pointing us towards interventions and hope for the future, it's not as useful. And so really that opportunity for feedback is a therapeutic opportunity in which we're like, here's the picture that we see and here's what we can do while you're in treatment and then while you continue with your treatment after you leave this level of care. Are there any ever times that the patient seems really resistant to the feedback where they really, they disagree with the findings from the Rorschach test? In my experience, it's more rare that that is the case, but I think that has to do with how the feedback sessions are run. I really like to be collaborative with the patient. I really like to invite them to share. And, you know, in my training, and this is not different than many other psychologists training, you learn to do assessment and then you have a long 15 page report. And then you sit there as a student in a room with a person and you read the report to them and you tell them, this is what is your diagnosis. And I think that we do things a lot different than that here at, at Cedar. And I think that helps with having the patient join and be open to hearing the feedback by really having a conversation. And, and I never hand a report to a patient, right? I typically use the whiteboard and I am organizing data into sections that make sense. And then I try to draw it all together and help the patient see how I see their picture through the testing. And uh, in my experience, they've been quite open to it when it's done in that manner. So that's probably very positive in that it like promotes curiosity, probably promotes curiosity on the inside on what kind of the gears in their brain. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, the patient is the expert on the patient. And when they're, I think, given that respect and encouraged to participate in this exploration of understanding themselves, it really can help for everyone on the team to feel like, okay, let's get together here and try to problem solve and look for a solution together. And it's not just us saying, here's what you need to do, but they get to join in that. So if, if somebody has uh, this test administered, like if they've gone through a Rorschach test, are they able to do it again? Or is it is it kind of one and done? They can... Yeah, no, they can. They can redo the, the Rorschach. 
Some of the other tests out there, um, the way that it works is there's a time frame. And I think that's the same kind of thing with the Rorschach. So if somebody's taken the Rorschach, you wouldn't want to give it to them again the next month. Um, you want to have some time to go by because they're not going to remember everything on there. But the nice thing about projectives is that it's not like they can go study up and get the right quote unquote answers for the test. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, once upon a time before the internet, the Rorschach cards were kind of held very secretively. You know, nobody can see these except for the patient. And, um, but nowadays they're on the internet. Uh, most people aren't researching them and trying to find them, but all you have to do is type it in and you can see what the cards are, but that's not going to help you with interpretation. <laughs> and ideally somebody hasn't seen them so that it's a very novel experience when they take the test, but it's, it's, it's really hard for somebody to try to cheat it. Yeah. Interesting. I was actually, I was, I was chuckling a little bit with this, like in this podcast where we're talking about like, so if, if somebody, if there's a listener out there who might be an over incorporator, are they going to like pay attention to this and take notes and then be able to downplay their over incorporation? <laughs> that would take some tests? pretty advanced <laughs> psychological mindedness. Um, and when the card comes and you see it for the first time and you're asked to say what you see, it's it's really hard not to just say what you you see. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. People their their guard their guard is almost always down. They have to their an authentic version of them usually comes out. Exactly. Is the Rorschach test used in other areas of healthcare, like is it ever used for like does the criminal justice system ever use testing like this? Yes, the criminal justice system does. Uh, people who have purely a mental health diagnosis without any substance diagnosis will use this as well. Um, it's really part of if you're going to do a full psychological battery, it's really a part of a comprehensive battery. And so you would never just give it alone. It would be in conjunction with other tests. But if you're going to do a full battery for somebody, you know, the appropriate way to do that, clinical history, you want to do some cognitive testing, you're going to do some objective testing, you're going to do some projective testing, and then you're going to take all of that information and you're going to use it to make a comprehensive integrated report based on what you see. Sure. And just to clarify, you say cognitive testing, meaning like IQ Testing? Yeah, IQ, uh, what are different cognitive abilities, looking at, at executive functioning, maybe attention ability, those kind of things. Okay. I know you had mentioned when we were talking about like the MMPI, that's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a testing of people's personality styles? or Essentially, yeah. And uh, it's, it's a very long test, 544 questions, I think. And... What happens is those questions are organized into, again, patterns based on how other people have taken the test, and there are 10 scales, and you'll get a score on each scale, and if you have a score elevated above a certain level, you might get a, a particular profile spike. Okay, interesting. Well, I'm very fascinated right now. I have, personally, I have never done this test myself, but now I kind of like want to do it. We'll see. <laughs> I'd be very curious what it would be. I have to make sure I get the right answers on a, a test like this. Yeah. Um, okay, so Dr. Austin, what are, do you have any other kind of final thoughts for our listeners about this, this topic area? Yeah. Well, you know, for me, the human mind is just a fascinating place. And I think that it is more complex than any of us fully comprehend. 
And the more that we look at it, and the more that we explore, the more that we learn. And uh, I think that psych testing is just one part of that exploration. It's a really interesting part for me, and I think a lot of folks uh, also agree once they understand it. But I certainly encourage everyone to look for their own path of exploration for that world of the mind because it's it's really deep. Yeah. I know that that's a core therapeutic goal for people. We're trying to help our patients have a greater freedom in their life, have greater insight and a greater sense of power and mastery that they can live the life they want to live. So using these instruments to shed light on what is inside, I think, grants them that. Yeah, I think it's a great way of putting it. Well, very good. Uh, recapping, we're, we're talking about the Rorschach inkblot test, kind of legendary in the world of psychology, something called projective testing, which is more kind of freeform, open, difficult for uh, the participant to fake it or manipulate it. And there's so many things that we can learn from uh, the data battery that has been done of the Rorschach over, over decades, many decades, dating back to the 20s. I'm Dr. Pat Failing. I'm here with Dr. Harlan Austin, uh, our psychologist here at Cedar. This was really enlightening. I thought that this was wonderful, Harlan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.